Well, those of you who are here and those who are in uh, on Zoom, I'm glad you're here. Uh, let's turn to Second uh, Peter chapter three. We we finished a long four lessons on false prophets, and uh, I'm going to bring up one more today as we get into a certain section. But I will hold him off to when we get there. But we're going to be in Second Peter chapter three today. This uh, uh, this chapter is going to be one of the minor themes of the book, and it's going to be the surety of Christ's return. And we're going to see the promises of Christ, and we're going to see the, the negativity of the false apostles and the false teachers and their lies, and we'll look at all these things. Let me read this uh, this chapter. Uh, probably won't get through to about, uh, I may get the first 13 verses, but I doubt it. But uh, we'll see how it goes. As we look at uh, lesson number nine, we look at the promises of God, that they are not slack, that we can trust them, that they will not fade away, but they are sure. Let's look at Second Peter chapter three. Behold, I now write to you, beloved, now now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers or mockers is a better translation, will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You are to look for and hasten the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, look forward to these things. Be diligent, be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. As our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and forever. Amen. So we see this last chapter of this good epistle by Peter as he warns these new believers who are overwhelmed by persecution, who are overwhelmed by stress, who seem like they're such a small minority of them. Does that sound familiar to you guys? These people who are overwhelmed by false teachers and false prophets, who mock them, who mock their faith, who mock the way they live their life, who toy, who toy with them 
and tell them that you've been deceived. Christ really isn't coming. Your life is worthless. We live in this kind of world today. Peter lived in this kind of world. So I want to encourage you today that this is not new. This is what Christ predicted. And we are going to learn how we are to persevere uh, in this world in which we live. So this will be very encouraging. Did someone say something to me earlier? I heard a noise. Maybe it's just my own mind. That's a scary thing. But I want to look at, uh, I want to look at this and, uh, we start this in verses one and two. We're going to see the certainty of Christ's return. Uh, and then I want to look at to whom this section is written to and it's very specific. And there is a specific purpose for it because there's some difficult verses in here. But we need to understand four times in this chapter alone, Peter addresses who he's speaking to. He's he's speaking to a diverse audience. He's speaking to people that have been that are Jews. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who are fleeing persecution. But he wants all of them to know whether they be Jew or whether they be Gentile, that they are beloved of God. So he mentions this in verse one. Look at him. He says, beloved. He's writing to God's people. He's writing to those. The word is agapateo. We get the word agape, which is God's love. And this agapateo means to those whom God loves, to those who... uh, God is showing and telling us that he has our true welfare in his heart. He desires us. He seeks us. Uh, he has a fervent love for us. This is going to reflect the apostles' love for his people. It's going to reflect God's love for his people. It is very tender. It is a persistent love. It is a love that holds on regardless Uh, And it is a faithful love. So Peter is addressing, first of all, the beloved. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1, beloved. We see that in verse 8. He says, beloved, don't forget the promises of God as he's talking to his people for our welfare so that when we are persecuted and when we are inundated by false prophets, we can understand his love for us. And is persistent. Look at verse 14. It also says, beloved, be diligent and look forward to these things. And then in verse 17, it says, it says, beloved, since you know all these things beforehand, he tells us, he warns us to be steadfast in faith, steadfast in obedience, steadfast in holiness. So we'll look at these things. But uh, it's very critical we understand the specific context of this chapter that is written to the beloved. He has no intention here of writing to the false apostles. He's not writing to false teachers. He's not writing to lost people because lost people would have no understanding of these teachings. They would have no understanding of a second coming. They would have no understanding of holy living. They would have no understanding. They have no participation in the in the holy nature, which we've talked about in chapter one. So he's writing to God's people, those whom God loves, and he is writing to them to encourage them. So I hope you're going to be encouraged uh, by this chapter. So that's the subject of whom he's writing to. Now, the purpose of this, and we're going to look at the purpose of why he's writing uh, it's going to be in verses 1 and 2. Beloved, I write to you this second epistle. We are assuming, and there is some uh, differences of opinions. There are some people who believe that Paul, that Peter wrote three letters and one of them was lost. That's a, a consensus from a lot of theologians. Uh, but we are going to take this. I think the consensus for the conservative guys that I read after anyway, I'm not a I'm not a scholar, but I believe that this is the second epistle. He's referring to the first epistle he's already written. I don't believe he's referring to the lost epistle that's out there that some refer to. But I believe he's writing this second epistle uh, in conjunction with and because it is in unity with the first epistle. He says, I write to you, 
I write both of these epistles to do two things. First thing he wants to do is what? What does it say in chapter 3, verse 1? He says, I write these in both of you to do two things. What's the first thing he says? As everybody has said in unison, to stir up your pure minds. That word, another word for pure mind is sincere. Uh, the Greek word is elikarine, uh, E-I-L-I-K-R-I-N-A, if you're writing these things down. It's a word written to beloved, remember, and it's written to minds that think through things. It's written to minds that meditate and reflect and think through matters. Now, this would not be true of lost folks. Lost folks don't meditate on God's word. They don't think through God's word. They don't reflect on God's word. They are dead to God's word. So this is written to believers. And so he, it's written to stir up our sincere minds. These are minds that have a disposition to receive the reminders from the apostle and to remember how important they are. It's a mind that is free from heresy. A great challenge to us as shepherds, uh, to, to, to you guys is to make sure that you, your minds are free from heresy. We talked about heresy four weeks ago about the, uh, the implied opinions of other people that are purposeful in leading people astray. So we want to guard uh, uh, the flock from wolves who come in who purposely want to lead people astray by heresy. But he is writing to stir up our minds, uh, and our minds should be free from heresy. That's what it means, pure means. Uh, and that is going to be a contrast to the false apostles whose minds are unstable, whose minds and hearts and whose lives cannot cease from sin. We got hearts that are trained in covetous practices. We talked about that in great detail in chapter two. So Peter is writing to us who have sincere minds, regenerated minds, meditative minds that think on God, who think on his promises and are purified by the promises of God. So, so Peter is writing to us. One of my commentators said that men, especially God's people, uh, need more frequently to be reminded than informed. I think that's pretty true in our church. I think most of us have information and are aware of God's word. And we've read God's word and we've studied God's word. We need to be reminded of God's word because we have a tendency to forget God's word. This morning I read uh, that Charlie Pride died, an 86 year old man. And a lot of you probably like Charlie Pride. And, and I'll be darned if a, if a song didn't come into my head that I haven't heard in 50 years. Kiss an angel. Good morning. And unbelievably to me, I remembered some of the lyrics to that song. And I haven't heard that song in 50 years. But I can't remember what I read in scripture this morning. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we need to be reminded of God's word. Not that we haven't heard it. Not that we haven't been taught it but that we just need to be reminded because we have this great tendency to forget God's word. And so Peter reminds us, okay? He reminds us. And so that's why he's doing this. So the, And the means by which he reminds us, the means by which he does this is he does it despite reminding us of the promises. He reminds us of the scripture and said, so he's going to put into our heads true teaching instead of the false teaching that is so prevalent in Peter's day and age and is so prevalent in our day and age. We need to be very careful to put in our heads truth instead of putting into our heads of today's theologians. And, and today's politicians and today's media. I think one of the, the great difficulties we have as Christians is we are bombarded by the negativity and the untruths that we hear from, from pulpits and from politicians and from the media. So we need to fill our heads with truth. 
uh, and the teachings from scripture instead of uh, filling our heads with pop psychology and all the other uh, ologies that are out there. And I think that's just a good reminder. Uh, from my commentators said the most effective antidote to false teaching is to recall and dwell on the teaching already received. So, so Peter reminds us. And then he says, he said, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you are mindful of three things, three different context three different sources should help us and call to mind our remembrance of things and this is going to be what he said exactly what he said in chapter 1 verse 12 through 15 if you'll go back to there he says this reason i'm not negligent to remind you though you know and are established in the present truth i think it's right as long as i'm alive as long as i'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I'm going to die, just as our Lord showed me. Moreover, I want to be careful to ensure you that you always have a reminder of these things after I die. So being dead, he still speaks as the Holy Spirit bore him along. As the Holy Spirit wrote this scripture, we have this from 2,000 years ago to remind us. And so we are reminded. He tells us to remind three things. Look at the end of verse 2, that you be be mindful, those things spoken by the holy prophets, the commandments of the apostles, and Christ himself. When it says the, the holy prophets, he's most likely speaking of the Old Testament prophets. He is calling the Jews to remember their heritage. He's calling the Jews to remember Moses and Samuel, and David, and and Solomon, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. He's calling them to to remember what they told them, and, and how they called them to holiness, and how they told them that a Savior would come, and how they were types of a Savior to come, and they predicted Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. They predicted his second coming, so he is He's calling these people to remember the Old Testament prophets. And then he says the commandments of us, the apostles. The apostles were specifically appointed instruments of Christ. They're foundational to the church. And so the apostles themselves have the authority, as Jesus gave them, to teach the truth and to basically uh, produce a foundation uh, and build upon the foundation, which is Christ himself. So he's calling the uh, uh, the men and the women of his day to remember the, the, the Old Testament prophets and to remember the current prophets. And he says, uh, the apostles of us, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that Peter does in this chapter and in this book he uses this double ex- explanation of Jesus. We've talked about this before, but just to remind you that he he uses this double uh, noun for Jesus. He's both Lord and Savior. Uh, he uses this in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. You'll look at chapter 1, verse 11. He says... Uh, uh, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He uses the double designation, the double noun. 2.20, he says the same thing. He says, uh, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, talking about the false teachers, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in 3.2, we just read this, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And then the last thing he says uh, to uh, these folks, to us, is, is, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. He is emphasizing the deity of Christ He's emphasizing the lordship of Christ. He's emphasizing that Christ is Lord and Savior. And he is opposing the teaching of these false prophets who did not respect or reverence the lordship of Christ. Uh, and so uh, it's a warning to us in this day, as MacArthur uh, in his famous book, The Lordship of Christ, I think written in the 70s or 80s. Uh, we need to remember that uh, he has to be our Lord and our Savior. 
And so he emphasizes that four times uh, in this book. And, uh, and he's just representing Christ himself. Christ said uh, he was going to return. So in this context, when he's reminding us of Christ's teaching, the apostles' teaching, and the, and the Old Testament prophets, he's emphasizing two things. He's emphasizing that Christ said he was going to return, and he will. Uh, just a few verses for that. Turn with me to uh, the great uh, teaching that Jesus gave his apostles as he stood on the temple. They asked him to see how beautiful the temple is. And, and Jesus said, well, this temple is temporary. This temple is going to all the... All the stones are going to be torn apart and not one stone will be left upon another one. And then he reminds them of the difficulties that they are going to face as they have faced persecution and martyrdom. And he reminds us of the difficulties of the tribulation period and the difficulties of, of the, the, that are going to come upon the earth and the specifically the birth pangs before the tribulation. But look at what Jesus said as Peter reminds us of the teachings of Christ regarding his return. Let's just start at uh, 24. Uh, we can start a bunch of places. Uh, let's start at verse uh, 36. But of that day and that hour, no one knows. This is talking about the parousia, the second return of Christ. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. For as the days of Noah were... So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch. For you don't know the hour that your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken to. Therefore, you be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. That's going to dovetail with uh, our admonition and exhortation to to live holy lives at the bottom of this teaching today. So if we get there, if we get there next week. But these are just examples. He taught about this in Mark. He taught about being watchful. He told about being waiting. He told about being busy, being faithful. He told, he talks about being, uh, uh, doing God's work, uh, while he comes. And then Paul reminds us, if you'll turn me with me to, to 1 Thessalonians, this is going to be an example from the apostles. We have an example from Jesus, uh, from the Old Testament. And now let's look at what Paul said about the return of Christ and how we should be living our lives. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll look at verse 1. This is Paul speaking about these promises of the return of Christ. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you don't have any need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a thief. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let's not let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober for those who are asleep, sleep at night. And those who are drunk are drunk at night. But let those of us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation for God didn't appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Whether we die or whether we live, we live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and build each other up in these words just as you are doing. So Apostle reminds us that Christ is coming and that the mockers be danged. And it doesn't matter what they say. We have the true promises of the prophets, of Christ himself and the apostles. So take heed. Keep reminding yourself, keep preaching the gospel to yourself. 
keep preaching hope to yourself uh, from the word. And so uh, so that's one of the reminders. And then another reminder uh, that that's emphasized in this text is that uh, he tells us to beware of false teachers. And so we've read these verses over the last four weeks. I'm not going to read them again, but uh, uh, these promises, uh, we need to be aware of the false teachers. We need to be aware of the false prophets. And so uh, that is the certainty of Christ's return. That's his purpose for writing this. Uh, and that is the encouragement that it gives us. Any questions about this so far? Before I get into the next section, it's going to be found in verses 3 through 7. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to contrast the heresy of the false teachers. We're going to find that in verses 3 through 7. And then he is going to give us the correct view of the second coming of Christ. First of all, he gives us the heretical denial of the Christ return. And we see that in verses 3 through 7. 3 through 7. First of all, he first thing he does is he predicts the mockers. So if you're writing these things down, I've got mine as a... Uh, is uh, Roman numeral two, the heretical denial of Christ's return in point A, and we'll go through point D or E, wherever it, wherever it is. But the point A is that Peter predicts his mockers. Uh, it says in verse three, knowing this first. That word knowing, we've looked at this word. It's it's epikinosis. It's it's a full intimate understanding. We aren't to be unaware. We're not to be surprised. Christ warns us, just like Abra- he warned Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He warns us, and we should have a complete understanding and knowledge that he is going to destroy this planet, and he's going to destroy uh, the works of wickedness, and he's going to restore so we should be aware of this. That's why it says knowing this first. This shouldn't be something that we're in the dark about. This isn't shouldn't be something that surprises us or worries us or creates anxiety within each of us, any of us. Uh, we should know these things because Scripture tells us very clearly. And so he says scoffers will come in the last days. So the first thing we see is this prediction. The word mocker or is a very fascinating word. It is uh, in Greek. It's empikeite. Uh, I don't even know. I can't even pronounce it. I'm going to pretend that I can. Uh, it's e m p a i k t i a. However, that's pronounced. If anybody knows Greek, uh, chime in with how that's pronounced. That's what this word is. It means mockers or scoffers. It's the same word we see in Jude. So if you look at verse 18 of Jude, uh, Jude is, says, how I told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their ungodly lusts. So this is the word mocker or scoffer. Now, a mocker or a scoffer is an individual who ridicules things that are very important. A mocker has a contempt for the people that they mock. It's a heart issue. Mockers hate you, and they hate whom they're mocking. As Jesus said, if you're in this world, they're going to hate you because they hated me. So these mockers has a contempt for whom they're mocking. You want an example of that? Remember the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, You know, we think I've heard people say, well, they were just doing their duty and they had to do this. No, 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 no. They hated Jesus as much as the leaders hated Jesus. And we see this in Luke 23. We see this word mocked. And this this gives us an indication of these Roman soldiers as they fulfill scripture, as they tell us what's in their hearts. They're not just obeying orders, but they too have a contempt for Christ. Look at Luke 23, verse 36. Uh, we see this, these, these soldiers, the soldiers also mocked him and offered him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, 
save yourself. They had a contempt for Christ. They didn't believe in Christ. And they had a, they ridiculed him, which was most important. They possessed a spirit. One of my commentators said a spirit of a frivolous, scornful disregard for sacred things. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes. Their own lust is the cause of why they mocked. Because they were wayward, they were ungodly, and their hearts revealed itself in how they treated Christ, how they treat us, how they treat sacred things, right? So the lust of their hearts is a betrayal of the mockers, as we're going to get into in a second. Yes. And this is going to be the opposite of righteous people who have a reverence for holy things and a reverence for holy things and have an awe of holy things and a respect for holy things. Remember, we talked about last week, these false prophets, they even mocked angels and they ridiculed and blasphemed angels, which they had no right to do. So we are have a prediction of the mockers, knowing this first, that scoffers will come. Now the timing of the mockers, if you're writing this down, point B, the timing of the mockers. It says in the last days. What is in the world does the last days mean? What, what are we talking about time frame? Anybody have any understanding of that? Anything after Christ's first advent until the second advent is considered the last times. Uh, so God's definition of last days is completely different of ours. As we look at a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, we'll get into that uh, in a second. But the last days is is generally defined as the time from Christ's first advent till his second advent. He came the first advent to be incarnate, to die for a people, and the second time he's coming in judgment uh uh, and for holy, righteous indignation against sin. Uh, so all the time between is called the last days. Specifically, particularly, uh, this is going to be the time close to uh, the time in which we are, the time that proceeds uh, the tribulation time and a time that defines today. If you'll look at uh, a couple of verses and just to be specific, uh, the final days, the last days can be broadly defined. But in this context, he's being more specific in his definition in this context because it is the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more specific this prophecy is. So we, if you just look at what Paul said about it and what John said about it, look at, uh, turn over a book to first John chapter two. As Peter said about these mockers that are coming in the last day, we see signs of this. And today we've seen signs of this for years but it is specifically becoming more and more evident to us about these uh, mockers. Now look at what First uh, John chapter two, eighteen and nineteen says, and he uses a word here, and I want to define it. Uh, little children, it's the last hour. Another way of saying it's the last days. And, and they wrote this 2,000 years ago. And this has been going on, but it's becoming more and more prevalent. It is the last hour, as you heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. So he's saying the, the Antichrist will, A, is coming. We'll talk about him in a second, very briefly. But he's saying now there are little antichrists, little a, will come, by which you know that it is the last hour. They, 
went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out of us that they may be made manifest that none of them were of us. So to apply today, I mean, to 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 apply Peter's day, there were false prophets and these false prophets gave evidence they were they were not real prophets because they fell away and because of their heresies that they taught. And John is saying, if you want to categorize this, these are antichrist. These are against Christ. And what are they against? Look at verse 20. If you want to define what someone who is an antichrist, not the antichrist who will come and deceive the whole world, but, but how do you define maybe a pre precursors or forerunners of or, or uh, are those who are false prophets? These are, and there are several ways we know. Verse 20, you have anointing from the Holy Spirit, and you know these things. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. Verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is an antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has a Father also. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Do not believe, 1 John 4, 1. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. So uh, to understand this, this uh, the timing of these mockers in the last days, uh, we see examples. And, and in Peter's day, it was the Gnosticists and the Docetists. They believed and taught that Jesus was a was a man and he wasn't fully God and he, and he wasn't he wasn't God, but he was just a man. He was a prophet. That spirit still pervades today. If you if you're keeping up with politics, uh, you know that the guy in Georgia, Raphael Warnock, he's a preacher. okay, and he said that Jesus was just a poor prophet from Palestine. So this same thinking, nothing has changed. So 2000 years later, you have false prophets. He claims to be a preacher. He says that Jesus was just a poor prophet from Palestine, and that's wrong on every dimension. That's an example of an antichrist because he denies that Jesus is the Christ. He says he's just a prophet, okay? So he is a antichrist as defined. He is a false prophet. He he says that it's the only thing the Christian thing to do is to kill babies in the womb. If you can believe that, it's Christ, and that is a mockery of the teachings of Christ. So we see that that guy specifically, who's running for Senate as a Democrat in Georgia, is a false teacher. Okay, do not doubt that. That's who he is. That's what he stands for. Christ is God. So he's an antichrist. He's a false prophet. And we are to warn people about him. And we are to, whatever you want to do, don't support him. We can't support him anyway, but he's in Georgia. But uh, just an example of the, how authentic God's word is. And that nothing is new under the sun. As he warned us, there are, and there are more and more people coming around today who's saying, I'm Christ. Jesus said, many will say, I'm Christ, I'm Christ. They, he says, don't follow them. Many people claim to be God. Many people who are New Agers claim that you can become God. All of these guys are false prophets. They are antichrist because they deny the deity and the humanity of Christ. And so we are to be warned, as Peter warned his people, we are going to become a minority, and we already are, but it is going to be more and more difficult to be a believer in our world, okay? I want to warn you about that. And if something doesn't happen on January the 20th, it will be even more difficult to be a believer in this world, okay? 
and uh, it's going to come fast and hard. Okay, persecution. Uh, we're going to be singled out, and it's uh, uh, just a whole nother sermon. Okay, but we understand the timing of these mockers. It's in the last days, and we see that. Now, remember what Peter, what uh, Paul said in Second Timothy. I've read what John said. Now let's look at what, what uh, Timothy says. Look what Paul says in Timothy. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 is we're warned of these mockers. Knowing this, 3 verse 1, know this first in the last days. We've defined that. Perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Uh, have everybody heard about any of these scandals going about? The root cause of that is the love of money. Proud, boasters, blasphemers, disobedient, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, uh, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures, lovers of rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, denying the power <laughs> From such people, turn away. Okay, so we see Paul, we see John, we see Peter reminding us of the danger of these false prophets and of their teachings. We see their prediction. We see they're here. Now let's look at these. Anybody have any comments about these guys? And now we're going to see uh, these mockers further portrayed. So if you're looking at writing these things down, point C is the betrayal of these mockers. Portrayal of these mockers. As Sister Sheila's already brought up, first thing we see with these guys, uh, they walk according to their own lusts. We've talked about this ad nauseum over the last five weeks. So I'm not going to reiterate that, but they are typified by a love of things and covetousness. And they are those who want to make merchandise of their congregants and do not care about their souls. And so we see they walk according to their lust. And so they mock and they show contempt. And then point uh, next thing we see is that they say, where is the promise of his coming? That word where, if you really define it, that word where says it's asking for evidence. And the implication is that the evidence does not exist. They are contempt. They show contempt. And when they say where, they're implying there isn't evidence for the return of Christ. It implies that there's no evidence and it is a taunting reaction concerning the return of Christ. So they mock, where is the promise of his coming? The implication is that Jesus is not coming again and that we have been sold a bill of goods. It is very similar to their response to the resurrection. They say the dead shall not rise again. And they say that Christ didn't rise again. And they do that to quelch hope as they show their contempt for him. So they say, where is the promise? I've heard that recently from Politicians who mock Christians, it's our crutch, they say, as we lean on this crutch that Jesus is going to come back soon. I even heard one guy say they even believe that they're going to be poofed up in the sky and they believe they're going to be raptured. And there is a mockery and their contempt for what we believe and what scripture teaches. And it's going to get more and more and more. So we see that they say, where is the promise of his coming? And make no mistake about it. Jesus promised that he was coming again. If someone were to ask you one of these mockers, whether it's at work or at school, maybe at this church, I, I doubt it very seriously, but uh, 
uh, would you be able to say Jesus promised he's coming again? And would you be able to show them where it says that? Tell me a verse. Where does it say that Jesus is coming again? Well, John chapter 14. Jesus promises that he's coming again. And so we need to have this word ready. We need to be have a reason for the hope we have. And if somebody asks you, some of these mockers says, well, where does it say? Where does it say that Jesus is coming again? That's just your, your opinion. <clears throat> you show them scripture. Let's look at John chapter 14. Mm-hmm. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. There is a promise that Jesus is going to return, and that's going to refute a mocker. Would you be able to do that? I encourage you to be able to do these things, okay? Be able to do these things. Remember the great prayer of Jesus? This is a reminder. We did this recently. And who remembers this verse? Look at John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus is praying for you and I to the Father. Jesus' prayers always get answered. So we have great confidence. Look what Jesus said in 1724 of John. Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold the glory which you have given me. That's a promise of the second return of Christ. That's a return promise. That's a being with him promise. We can take this scripture and be very sure of it. Just to give you another example. Remember when Jesus ascended into heaven? After he rose from the dead? He, the angels said this. Look at Acts 1.11. So he goes up into the clouds, verse 10, and uh, Acts 1, verse 10. And while they look, these are the uh, disciples uh, who watch Jesus leave. And while they look steadfastly toward heaven, he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you unto heaven, will so come in like matter as you saw him go into heaven. So we are promised a return of Jesus. Just like he left, he will come back. Promises we need to cling to and understand. What did Paul say as we understand this in our church as the promise of the Catching up the rapturo of the church. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. We understand. Verse 17. We who are alive and remain shall be rapturoed, <laughs> caught up together with them in the clouds. That's the dead people. That's my mother. That's your mother. That's your daddy who will be raised from the dead first. And we're going to meet them in the air. That's the rapturo. It says to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort each other with these words, okay? So we are promised, and it behooves us to know the promises, okay? Uh, you know, when when Paul was about to die, and he knew he was being offered up, did he boo-hoo? Was he discouraged? What was his attitude? It was an attitude of faith. And forward thinking, look what he said, Second Timothy. This is the last thing our beloved Paul said. Look what he said, Second Timothy. He said, verse 6, we'll start there, give us a little context. Uh, so when we're taunted, we have great hope. We have a multitude of verses 
that encourage us, the promises. Paul said, I am already been poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. I hope that includes you. That includes me. We have a promise that we're going to get a crown of righteousness if we look forward to and we are ready for his second coming. Yes, his promises are true and amen. I don't hear anybody saying anything. I don't hear anybody nodding. Woohoo, we got a woohoo. Good for the woohoos. So Jesus loves us. He's coming back to get us. Regardless of the scoffers. Now look at these arguments of the scoffers. This is going to be point A, two, three, four. D. The argument of the scoffers. They're very clever people. They are difficult to argue with and uh, we shouldn't argue with them. We should lovingly rebuke them, huh? But you can't argue with them. Look what they say. Look at the, the argument of the mockers. 4B. Here's what they say. Where is the promise? And here's their logic. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. For this they willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world would then existed, being flooded with water, perished. Okay. So here is the argument of the mockers all things continue as they are nothing's changed you've been promised the second coming of jesus for two thousand years and look at you you're still in this world you're still struggling you still believe this lie that was told you everything is nothing has changed but this is what uh uh so they say that uh, since the fathers fell asleep, what is that phrase, the fathers fell asleep? Uh, what does that mean? Oh, Pardon me? They've died, but who is the fathers? What is that phrase, the fathers, since the fathers have died, everything's the same? What are they referring to there? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Pardon me? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, two people have said the patriarchs. So we the, definitely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs have died. And uh, they're saying that since they've died, nothing's changed. That includes all of the Old Testament prophets. That includes the, uh, the, the recent Christian martyrs, Stephen and Jude and uh, not Jude, but James. Uh, the preacher at Jerusalem, one of the first to be martyred. So that includes all of the Old Testament prophets, the patriarchs. That includes the recent, recent Christian uh, martyrs, those who have died in the faith. It includes uh, all the Christians. It includes the apostles. It includes the, uh, uh, it includes the Old Testament and the New. So when they say all things remain the same, for since the fathers fell asleep, so that's who they're referring to. So uh, uh, that's who that is. But look what they say. Uh, for since the fathers have died, in that phrase, the fathers have died, they are again mocking Christianity and Christians. Uh, Going to come again. They've all died. They're mocking Christianity. They're disregarding the hope of the resurrection. They're saying they've died and they disregard the hope we have for resurrection. They are, when they say they've died, they're mocking the return. They're mocking Christ's claims that he raised from the dead. They, they are, they are with Paul saying, if Christ didn't rise again, then we are all most to be pitied men. And so they are mocking the claims of Christ, his resurrection, and his promise of a second coming. So all of these things are involved in their mockery and in their contempt for everything that is 
Christ. Mm. So they mock him. Then they say, uh, uh, look at the verse four, and they say, uh, they, that word willfully forget means they're deliberately ignorant. They deliberately the evidence to the contrary. Uh, they uh, they willfully of their own will they say and they forget the truths from history. And what truth are they forgetting from history? When they say all things are the same since the beginning of creation, all things are the same. What are they willfully forgetting that they should know? It's from the Old Testament. It's the flood. Look at what they say. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers died, all things are continue as they were. Nothing's changed. But this they willfully forget. By the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water. And in the water by which the world that then existed perished, they willfully forget. And they say nothing's changed. They forget the flood. They forget. They have the same attitude as the folks that were alive before the flood. They mock Noah. They mocked his preaching. They mocked the thought that said that it was going to rain and flood the earth. It had never rained. And they mocked him. And so these false prophets willfully forget not everything is the same. God created the heavens and the earth. And and the heavens and the earth were created by God. But then God destroyed the earth because of the violence and the sins of the earth. And these mockers conveniently forget about the flood. And they say everything is the same. And because the flood occurred and because God's word is true, God, it says in this scripture, by the word of God, the heavens were made. God said, let there be light. There was light. God said, let there be animals. God said this. God said that. It's the word of God. Scripture says in Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So they conveniently forget God's word. Isn't that applicable to false prophets? That's what they're going to forget. They forget his word. His word created the earth. His word destroyed the earth. And because his word destroyed the world, the world as it was in the flood, they can, we can rightfully anticipate that his word will be true again. And when he says the second time, I'm going to destroy the world, not by flood, but by fire. So because of his past truths, we can anticipate and believe future truths. So that's the <coughs> argument, excuse me, against these false prophets. They willfully forget God's word. They willfully forget how he destroyed the earth in the flood. And they willfully do not anticipate the truth of the fact that God has promised that he's going to destroy the world by fire. And we'll get into all that detail uh, next week of how God is going to destroy the world. We're going to talk about this catechism of judgment. Uh, when it says that the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, heavens and the earth standing out of war perished, uh, that does not mean that it was annihilated. It doesn't mean that it was completely destroyed. The word means that it was changed. And so when God flooded the earth, he, all of the lost people on the earth were saved. That's the millions that were saved. Okay. So the earth as we know it was forever changed. I'll get into this next week, but again, that the world as it existed was changed. You know, it had never rained before and there was a canopy over the earth and the firmament 
unleashed as well as the depths of the earth unleashed. And so the world as we know it was not annihilated, but it was changed completely. And we'll get into that next week about this phrase, the water, earth standing out of the water and in the water. We'll get into that next week. But then we're going to see that that's going to be anticipation for the melting of the elements. And it's going to be a complete change uh, from our present day earth. And we'll talk about that next week. So uh, stay tuned. But I think that's all I got time for. But uh, these heresies next week, we'll look at the the correct view of the second coming. And we'll look at this difficult phrase, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. We'll look at the whole verse and the context of the verse, and we'll see the correct view of the second coming. And then we'll look at the last chapter. We'll see the four, three major imperatives about living holy in this day in which we live. That's all I got. I'm burn up and burn out.